This is Real Talk, the Customer Insights Show with Jen Vogel, a top-rated live stream and podcast in the market research and insights industry. We stream live on LinkedIn, Twitter, and YouTube, and you can listen on all major podcast channels. Join Jen and her guests for a weekly discussion around topics that will help you understand your customers better. Real Talk is presented to you by Vox Popme, the leader in video research and ranked number one in qualitative research by GRIT two years running. Here's today's conversation. Hello, insights professionals, marketers, and everyone who wants to understand your customers better. I'm Jen Vogel, and today I want to talk about the future of market research. Where are we heading as an industry? What's changing? What can we predict today? This is a really exciting topic, especially given the all the shakeups that have been happening recently. And so to dive into that topic, topic, I'm really excited to be joined by a 40-year veteran of the market research industry. He's the author of several market research publications, the chief research officer at Potentiate. It's my pleasure to chat with Ray Pointer today. Welcome to the show, Ray. Hi, Jen. Thanks for having me. So happy to have you today. Now, I heard that uh, you did something exciting yesterday. Yeah, I was. Um, I have a bit of a rivalry with Dave um, mm -hmm. in terms of sporting events, mm -hmm. and, and my strength is running. So yesterday, I got a new PB for the half marathon, uh, one hour thirty-four. Amazing. So four minutes. So I was quite pleased with that. Congratulations. We'll we'll have to bring Dave onto the show and and find out what his half marathon time is. I don't think he's going to touch you on that one. <laughs> well, congrats on the personal best. Um and thank you so much for joining us today. Thankfully, this is a conversation where you can be seated. I'm sure that's <laughs> welcomed on your side. Um so maybe just to kick us off, let's uh, let's hear a little bit about you and your experience in the market research and insights field. Okay, well, happy the the quick version to cover forty plus years. So <laughs> I graduated in the nineteen seventies with a degree in computer science, mathematics, and economics. Um, so nearly everything I learned in computer science is Greek now. But I got a job implementing market research software on the very first Apple IIs that were brought into the UK. So this was summer 1978, um, using them to be able to analyze data and process data. And I've pretty much stayed at wherever the front end is since then. So we started using computers to do data collection and CAPI. We started using computers to do modeling. Um, we started using them more and more for conjoint analysis and what's if, uh, what if modeling. Um, moving along, I, I then got a direct position with Millwood Brown, which is now Cantar, um, various other organizations until about 10 years ago when I started specializing more in coaching, training, consulting, writing textbooks and so on. And that's mostly where I am at the moment. Wonderful. And so what was it that, first of all, I, I think we could probably do a whole show on what it was like to major in computer science in the 70s. That sounds like really, really interesting to me to learn about what was what the focus was at that time. Um, but what was it that made you decide to make that shift from kind of being in the industry and being in Millard Brown, Cantar, those kind of bigger companies to 
moving to coaching and training? Like, did you see something in the industry that needed your help? I have a really short attention span. So I would much rather show somebody how to do something than do something several times over. Mm. Um, and I believe I have a reasonably good talent in going into places that are broken and helping them fix. But if I go into somewhere that's actually fixed and it's working well, I'm quite likely to break it. <laughs> so that kind of pushes me into that zone. Well, sometimes even the, the things that are working need a little breaking sometimes to get a, get a bit better. Oh, um, yeah. But you don't get a lot of friends doing that. Well, yeah, I could <laughs> see that. <laughs> um, so, okay. Changes in the market research industry. Clearly, we've been, I mean, things have changed a lot in the last 40 years, as I'm sure you can tell us. Right now, things are changing like crazy. Just in the last week or so, we've seen some really interesting shakeups, um, a lot of uh, funding coming into the industry. That's been a trend. I mean, we could go back over the last year or last two years and say that there's been a lot of movement in that area and in the M&A space. But just in the last like seven to 10 days, we've seen a ton of it. Yes. Um, so I do want to spend a little bit of time talking about that and what that means. But um, what are some of the, you know, let's start there, actually. Let's like, what are you making of all this craziness that's happened over the last week? I mean, it obviously reflects that the insights industry by its broadest definition is seen as a better place to put your money than lots of other places at the moment. And that's got to be a real positive. Mm -hmm. It reflects that there has been an immense growth in evidence-based decision-making, people wanting to use information to make better decisions. And in particular, because we're talking about insights, information about customers, about people, about beliefs and behavior that enable brands to do a better job. So that has been going on. All of a sudden, we've got this, this rush of money coming in, and quite a lot of it seems to be driven by, I want to get one of those companies before I'm too late. So there's mm. probably going to be a lot of people who have, have bought the wrong thing because they wanted to make sure that they bought something. So I think we'll, there will be some strange shakeouts going on. Yeah, that's an interesting take that there's there's some sense of urgency to get in now. Um, it does seem like over the last, I don't know, maybe a year or two, um, there's been far more interest from outside the industry in our yeah. industry, which is relatively new. I mean, um, it used to be that the only people really talking about consumers and customers or insights were market research and insights folks. And now it's marketers, it's, you know, people outside the industry and seeing acquisitions like um, SAP buying Qualtrics several years ago, and now Zendesk um, with Momentive, you know, it's not just purchase, you know, mergers and acquisitions within the space. There's so much interest from outside, which is, um, you know, kind of exciting, you know, to see that. I love how you put it. There's, um, you know, it's seen as a good place to put your money right now, uh, this idea of understanding customers, which is kind of new to certain people, which is, um, yeah, really interesting to me. It is. And I'd also pick up on a phrase that Greg Alchibald and, and Lenny Murphy over at Greenbook used uh, last year, which was the full stack company. Mm. 
So companies want to have a platform. They want to have a platform to collect data. They want to have access to panels. They want access to integration with other services. So we're seeing people like Salesforce and so on becoming much more integrated. Some of the developments going on around in the CX space, Medallia and so on, you can see them sort of trying to buy lots and lots of square-shaped and round-shaped companies and hoping they can fit a jigsaw out of them um, mm. because there's this desire to have this full-stack solution. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Well, it'll be pretty wild to watch how things shake out over the next, I don't know, six months, a year. It's definitely an exciting time. And congrats to all those companies out there to, you know, to Lucid, to uh, Discover AI, lots of really exciting yeah. things happening in this space. So um, what are some of the other maybe pivotal moments in your experience in the industry over the last four decades? Well, there were lots. Um, one of them, I guess, would be the decline of expertise on the client side. So when I started mm -hmm. in the 70s, you were told things like, let the data speak for themselves, because most clients at the Unilevers and the Procter & Gamble's who were buying research were super knowledgeable people. They would go through a lot of training to get their jobs, to run their jobs, and what they wanted was more data. And data was difficult to get in those days. Now, of course, data is much easier to get. And the people we're giving the data to aren't just insights managers. They have got maybe it's five or 10% of their job. They've got too many other things on their plate to be experts. So that's why we've seen things like storytelling and engagement and the use of video become much more important on the supplier side because we're filling spaces um, that need do, need um, taking care of on the client side because clients are now more generalist and less specialist. Mm. The same trend drives the shift towards really straightforward platforms because an alternative to having lots of agencies coming in with specialist skills is to be able to have a really smart platform where you can go there and you can do a, an ad test simply by uploading your commercials and it will do the whole test for you. So not a platform that lets you script a survey, but a platform that lets you do a concept test or an ad test. And we're seeing that change going on. So this shift of where the skills are has been one of the, the fundamentals. And then of course, the internet. Colossal, not just in the ways that are obvious, but also in what we then compromised over. So before 1995, 1996, most data collection for quant and qual, one of the questions you would ask is, have you done a survey in the last three months? And you would screen them out if they had taken mm. part in the survey. Have you been in a focus group in the last year? you would screen them out if they'd been in a focus group in the last year. And we've jumped from that, which was all random digit dialing for Catty, door-to-door -door knocking in lots of parts of the world, to reusing the same people over and over again. So we talked about Linton um, Lucid a moment ago. A lot of the people in these panels are doing 100 plus projects a year. They actually see more surveys than most market researchers see. 
So that has fundamentally shifted what we think of as the right way to go about the business. Yeah, that's uh, it, it really, um, when you put it that way, <laughs> the respondents see more surveys than market researchers in the year. That's yeah, really interesting. Um, so, I mean, this is a really, uh, I'm really curious about the shift in skill set needed, right? Like your comment that they being a, a, an insights person in the 70s required a level of expertise that the insights folks don't have time or resource for anymore. So what do you think are the skills needed today that are the most important to prioritize if someone is like kind of spread too thin and do it like responsible for a lot of different things? I mean, we come back to this T-shaped concept. Mm -hmm. So you have to know what the people around you do so that you can interface with them. So you've got to understand what business does. You need to, if you're a, in an agency, you actually need to understand how your clients make their money. Um, you need to be able to talk to the big data people. You need to be able to talk to the AI people. So that's where the sort of the flat part of the T is, but then you've got to bring something to the game. And that something can be ethnography. It can be videography. Uh, it can be storytelling, but you need to make sure that you have got something that every time this problem comes up, they're going to say, oh, let's call for Jen because she's really good at X. Um, and there are a handful of things which probably are not good to be really good at, like scripting surveys. <laughs> um, most things actually are going to be fine. Be a great storyteller. Be a great cutter down of a of a hundred page presentation deck into a ten page one. Um, there's so many different skills out there, and you want to make sure that you you're recognised for them, that you've got those, and and then you develop that as part of your brand as an individual. Yeah, I love that. I as a marketer, you know, I'm very familiar with the concept of a T-shaped marketer. Um, but to hear it in the context of a researcher, I, I think it's really smart to kind of, you know, figure out what it is that one thing that you bring to the table and be known for that. Um, that's a great way to look at it. Um, so let's uh, take out our crystal crystal balls and uh, what are think about the future of the industry, you know, from, from everything you've seen over the years, what, what do you think uh, insights folks need to be prepared for um, in the coming years for an insight? Um, the demand for speed is going to go up. So the more <laughs> evidence-based decision-making is used wider in the company the faster they will need it because they're not going to plan to have it in advance. They're going to be in a meeting and they're going to say, well, how many people do drink cappuccino in the morning, but not in the afternoon? I don't know. Do you know? Can we Google it? And if they can't Google it, the next step is us. Um, but it's, it's they're going to want it that day or they're going to want it the next day. So speed, massively important. So is easy. Easy is actually quite close to speed as well. So we don't want a big problem definition process for a simple problem. We need to be able to get something that's going to bring it back and it's going to be really straightforward and it's got to be easy to use. So we're going to see a real push towards that. And so what we're seeing in terms of the platforms at the moment are lots and lots of tools 
And as I mentioned before, it's going to be the next step is whole solutions. Um, so I need to understand how many types of people drink coffee and what distinguishes them and what the opportunities are will be one product. That will be a, a product that probably 10, 20 different companies will offer with slight variations in it. And it won't be about, well, should we ask this question or should we ask that question? Except when it's a really hard problem. So 10% of the time is the hard stuff. 90% really needs to be very easy. Mm -hmm. It needs to be packaged solutions, flow through, um, created by experts, but handled by everyday people. Mm. Well, okay. So there, there's something we can unpack created by experts. Um, there's a big mix in the industry of different uh, experience in creating all the new technology and automation that exists out there. Um, so when you say created by experts, uh, like who needs to be developing this easy to use, fast methodology and um, automated solutions and platforms. Well, I, I'm going to give you an analogy from a radio show I was listening to when I was driving back from my race yesterday. And they were interviewing people about developing new vegetables. And there had been a breakthrough because they, in the past, all the companies that do the um, breeding of, of new vegetables and trying to come out with uh, different ideas, different colors, different tape flavors and things like this had worked with the farmers. But they've now started working with chefs. What is it you need um, in the kitchen? So we need to think about the farmers, the companies. We need to think about the experts, the scientists. But we also need to think about the business people to find out what those pieces are going to be. And I would say quite often the biggest weakness when I look and when I do consulting with the tech platforms is they don't have anybody that knows what is already possible. So they will come to me and say, we've got this solution that's going to solve a problem that nobody can tackle. And I look at it and say, do you know what? I can think of 200 companies that are tackling that problem. <laughs> they're not tackling it the way you are, but they're tackling it sufficiently well that their clients are happy. So you're not coming up with a brand new solution. Or, and I see this in chatbots a lot, they don't... Um, a lot of the chatbots have not been created in a way that an insights manager or a standard professional or a market researcher can, can construct the chats. And the data that comes back is really hard to process because it doesn't fit into the mesh. So that is why you do want researchers, you do want insight managers in that process so that what we're creating takes what we already do and moves it forward rather than being disjointed. We don't want to develop something like Google Glass, which was an awful lot of fun when it was developed. I, I tried it along with everybody else, but it didn't fit into the system. Mm -hmm. And if things don't fit into the system, they don't happen. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's, I love that example because I did a bunch of research on Google Glass and why it failed when, uh, when it was came out and went away. <laughs> and, uh, so I love that example. We could dig into that one um, quite a bit. And actually we just recently did some research on the Ray-Ban Facebook glasses that came out. And I think they've actually hit on some things that 
Google Glass didn't, but we're getting off track, <laughs> um, which I can do often. Mm -hmm. um, but see, now I've totally lost my train of thought of the actual topic we're supposed to be talking mm -hmm. about. But yes, I think, you know, that that collaboration and, you know, there's a lot of different people creating solutions, using solutions, having problems, needing solutions, and that collaboration and that kind of co-creation of what those solutions actually are that are needed, um, I think is actually one of my favorite things about this industry is it is very collaborative and it's quite easy to get groups of people together and talk about what the problems are and uh, what needs to be solved and how can we be better as a technology provider? How can, you know, um anyways i think that's one of the things i love and about the uh i think one of the challenges is for really bright people who most of the people who develop these new technologies are to understand the chasms that they don't understand mm -hmm. um and this is a challenge we all have from time to time if you're really good in a zone you've got to realize that when you move out of your zone you are not as knowledgeable um you might not even be as bright. Um, if you are a great scientist, you might never be a good musician. Um, <laughs> if you're a great scientist, you may never be a good painter. It's not just that you haven't applied yourself. Actually, you may not have that aptitude. And that's why you need other people to come into the mix um, as part of that process. One of the things I see again with some of the tech platforms is they will have really bad research enabled by their fantastic tech. So they will ask people, okay, when you're choosing a holiday, which of the following are the most important criteria? Now we know from behavioral economics, we know from all the neuroscience that people don't have access to that. They can't mm -hmm. answer that question. Mm -hmm. And most qualitative researchers wouldn't ask it that way. Most quantitative researchers wouldn't ask it that way. But you can see tech people coming along thinking, all we have to do is find a really new, interesting way of asking the question. We can ask these dumb questions and expect the answers to be better than they were before. And that is where I see some of them falling over in their examples. Not yeah. the actual technology, the technology can be fantastic, but the examples they show can be shocking. Mm, interesting. So yeah, it, it is important to get that, that collaboration with the experts and methodologists and, um, you know, people who know how to craft a good question. Um, yeah, yeah, that's, a it's, uh, definitely an art. Um, and now, you know, what you said about speed and ease also, the fact that <laughs> you comment that things are going to get faster, the pressure is going to get you know, for more speed is going to increase. I don't even know how that's possible. Like the expectation now that's put on researchers for fast research, but what the way you describe it, you know, if somebody needs an answer to something, the first thing they're going to do is Google it. And if they can't find the answer, they're going to need you to find it for them. And uh, there's a great video out there. I'll, I'll find it and post it in the show notes, but the guy describes the, you know, the kind of, um, uh, real-time economy as people are summoning things at the speed of thought and that you know that line really has always stuck with me like you basically just you know you think of something and you just google it um and so i i totally can can see that but i guess how do how do researchers prepare for 
more speed, you know, more, you know, uh, more pressure to get that answer immediately. I mean, there are, there are two or three good strands that are going on at the moment, um, some of which will turn out to be dead ends, some of which will turn out to be great. So one of them is using AI to guess what people would have said. So we're already seeing um, techniques which show you a new product or it'll show you a new advertising page and the AI forecasts where would the eyes go. Hmm. Now, does it actually work? Obviously is one of those questions, but that's a massive area of investigation that's going on where we could show a stimulus and forecast what the probable response would be. Um, the vendors are all very optimistic, obviously. Um, so that is, is one route. Another is super fast. So you get these companies, they've got a whole bunch of people um, who are connected to them. They get a question from the client. They put the question out there. Does anybody know the answer to this? The equivalent of crowdsourcing, people in the street, whack-a-mole, um, all sorts of different companies in that sort of zone where they're leveraging people's opinions really, really quickly. And another one is where you think about all the questions that are likely to be asked and you try to ask them in advance. Or coming back to some of the things that Vox Pop me do, you collect the videos in advance. So people can say to you, do we have people, mm. videos of people eating breakfast on trains? And so we can have a look and see what it is they do, what's missing. Now, if we can push that a bit further with the AI and we can say, what do people who eat breakfast on trains not do that people eating breakfast in a restaurant and at home do do? That is where we're starting to really accelerate it. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, what happens is the AI throws up all the possible cases and a human skims them by eye because there may be a few things that are like, oh, yeah, that's just a feature of the way we've asked the question, not of the answer. Sure. Yeah. So I, I think there is such an opportunity to kind of go back to what do we already have? And as long as it's easy to access, it goes back to what you said earlier, you know, years ago, it was hard to get data. Now that that's solved. We've got all the data somewhere. It's just yes. accessing it properly. That's the trick. And so being able to really quickly and easily go back through what you already have and find an answer is really valuable. So you don't have to run a new study. Um, I love that angle. Um, um, I have a question actually about the, you know, using AI to guess what people will say. It sounds exciting. Um, what about trust? I mean, I, do you feel like researchers trust the automation and the AI that's coming out? Or is that, do they need to trust it more? Is that a function of the development of the technology? Nearly everybody I meet either trusts it too much or too little. Um, yeah. mm -hmm. And could you make people that completely dismiss it as a possibility and you get people who completely believe it. And it is not a settled science. Um, I, I would put it in the same category as facial coding conducted by people is not a settled science. So facial coding conducted by AI is even less because we don't know that it's replicating something that's real. So you you need to go in there and see do some test cases does it look coherent does it um is it 
reliable. Now, I'm a statistician at heart. Um, and for me, the word reliable means if I do the same thing twice, do I get the same answer? Because if it's not reliable, it's not going to be valid. So even before I get to the question about how valid is it, I can have a look and say, how reliable is it? Do I get the same things back when I put the same things in? Mm -hmm. um, but we need to work out which of these things are knowable. And if they're not knowable now, they will be at some point in the future. Mm -hmm. Yeah, interesting. I, I like that designation of, you know, is it reliable first? Can I repeat this over and over and get the same answer? Um, and I think over time, I think that I totally agree. You've got people who say it's, you know, totally dismiss it, won't even look at it, it's not valid. And then people who are have an over-reliance on it. But I do think that there will be, as the technology continues to develop and people use it more, and see that it is reliable and repeatable, um, then there will be probably more trust in that in that tech. I also think all AI is not created equal. Um, oh. AI is definitely a buzzword, and there it gets thrown around. And sometimes things are described as AI that aren't actually AI, and we don't understand what AI is. So um, <laughs> that's probably uh, feeds into it a little bit. Um, all right, so. How can we, um, you know, plan for the future, future-proof our strategies when we're so busy prioritizing the checklist, the day-to-day, -day, the things we have to do right now? You, you have to have different people doing different things. So there's a nice book called something like Three Boxes, which talks about um, one bit of the company working and doing, doing delivering one developing the new things and one having the, the high level thinking. And sometimes those people mix together and sometimes they kept quite separately. Um, Guy Kawasaki tells a lovely story about when he was at Apple, he was on the Mac team. And so the Mac was being developed and they were in a different building. And he is quite embarrassed now, I believe, by because he looks back and they looked down at all the people working on the Apple II who were making all the money. That's where all the money came from. And, but they were doing this super clever thing over here, uh, developing the Mac. And so you have to have some of that separation going on in your company where you have people who are pushing the new boundaries and parameters and you've got people who are being productive. One of the big terms that's come through in recent years is pivot. And so all the time looking, do we kill this project? Do we pivot or do we proceed? And we are getting, I think, as... And in as not just our industry, but other industries, much better at that process. We're probably still a little bit weak about killing projects. Um, with hindsight, it's often much simpler mm -hmm. to see that really it should have been killed. And um, Kristin Luck, who is now the president of um, mm -hmm. SMR and is, is one of the great thinkers in our industry, has this lovely question which she asks people, are you working in the business or on the business? Um, which comes back to the three boxes idea. You have to have some people who are working on the business and not in the business um, because they are the people that are going to take you to the next step. Um, you need that separation, really. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's it's really difficult to find that sometimes because there is a and maybe this is just working culture of, you know, we we wear a lot of hats and you want strategic thinkers who are willing to get their hands dirty and that that blurs the line that, you know, the thinker and the doer at that point. Um and I think there's a lot of there's always competing priorities of when you're supposed to be doing the strategic thinking that and working on the business, as you say, as Kristen says, um, yeah. instead of in the business, there's always a deadline or a checklist in front of you. Even, you know, I, uh, I'd be interesting, interested to hear um, businesses who do a really good job of separating those individuals. Cause I think, you know, what a lot of what I see is people trying to separate their time into those three buckets, as opposed to having separate teams. So that's a really interesting angle. Yeah. One of the things I, I've noticed, and it doesn't always work, but it often works, is when I see a founder appoint somebody else to be the CEO and they go off to be um, the innovation officer or they go off to do something else like that. And that is always strikes me as a good sign. Mm. Um, in the insights industry, we actually have way too many chief executives who entire working experience is in our industry we probably should see something like 50 percent of chief executives coming from other industries um, who are much more likely to dismiss some of the ideas that we bring forward as being that's not part of the business if you want that in the the skunk works as tom peters used to call them where you're off mm -hmm. developing new ideas that's fine um so when I see founders appointing CEOs who are people with teeth who are actually going to run the business, as opposed to people that um, I used to work with a company, I won't name, name them, but the CEO's job was to do whatever the founder didn't feel like doing that day. So the founder basically did anything they want and they would interfere and they get involved in things. And then this other person dealt with everything that had been left unfinished. Um, and that wasn't a great recipe. I mean, a very talented person, but uh, not a great recipe. Yeah, that doesn't sound like a great recipe for a business, though. That founder role sounds perfect. I want somebody to do all the things I don't feel like doing. <laughs> just in life. Yeah. I mean, can I just have that person in my life? <laughs> I don't feel like going grocery shopping today. Maybe you can go do that. Have you ever listened back to the old radio plays of like the 1920s, the 1930s? Do you they had um, a cook and they had a butler and they would say things like, George, run me a bath. And you're thinking, you lazy devil. <laughs> um, it's, it's not the, the new way. What you really need to do if you're a founder is get out of the way of the people mm. running the business. That's not the box that is probably the right box for you. Interesting. Well, I think that's a really good place to leave it today. I can't thank you enough for coming on today. It's a really exciting time in our industry. And um, I really appreciate hearing your experience and your expertise. Pleasure. Great talking to you. Absolutely. Thanks, everyone, for listening in. We'll be back for another episode soon. We will see you then. Bye.